Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Frank Garuti is an associate professor of history at Columbia University whose work focuses on sport history, urban history, and the history of the African diaspora in the Americas. He is not only an award-winning historian, but has also won two awards for his pedagogy, which is similarly impressive. His first book, Forging Diaspora, Afro-Cubans and African-Americans in a World of Empire and Jim Crow, won prestigious prizes from both the Association of Caribbean Historians and the American Historical Association, which is just amazing. He is here joining us today to talk about his new book titled The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of Athletics, which is coming out in two days, I believe, from when we are recording. Frank, we are absolutely thrilled to have you with us today and welcome to the end of sport. Well, I am super excited to be here. Uh, I've said it to you before. I'll say it again. I've been an admirer of this podcast. I think you folks are doing extraordinary work, uh, really exemplary, uh, what I would call public scholarship and activism. And so I'm super excited to talk to you today. Thank you for saying that. Um, And so as you know, we always like to start by asking our guests, um, how are you doing as we are very slowly starting to come out of the pandemic in New York? You know, it is hard for me to answer that question with the formulaic, I'm fine. (laughs) Uh, I haven't been able to answer that question that way for a year. You know, when the pandemic upended life in New York City, as it upended the rest of the country eventually. You know, um, most days since then, I've ranged from feeling angry, sad, fearful, outraged, anxious, despairing, with an occasional moment of happiness here and there. Uh, I have felt a degree of survivor guilt uh, because uh, I am not one of the 500,000 plus people who have died from this pandemic. I feel fortunate, of course, but it's hard to feel lucky and grateful when you see so much, uh, dis- you know, destruction and suffering, you know, that we've witnessed and like we've witnessed yet again this week in Atlanta with the shootings uh, this week. Right. I mean, I have a job. I'm fortunate to be able to work from home. Um, and, and yet, you know, that's, that only feels so satisfying, right? Surviving a catastrophe, you know, elicits all sorts of feelings. At the same time, I've been invigorated by the protest movements that uh, enveloped this country and the world last summer. You know, I'm a big believer in, in the power of social movements. I'm a historian of social movements. I love the activism that I'm seeing in the world of sports. You know, the, the repudiation of the stick to sports mentality that has prevailed far too long. Yeah. That's been exciting. Uh, I don't want to return to normal. I didn't like the pre-2020 normal. I want to see something better out of this disaster. Um, so unless, but uh, I guess I'll say that I'm starting to feel excited about the fact my book is out. Um, you know, we in academia don't celebrate our books enough. And um, and I'm trying to embrace the moment and, and, and sort of acknowledge that this book was an achievement of some kind. Absolutely. And probably a little bit different in the in the moments of Zoom. That's true. No, this, you know, it, it's, to some degree, that's okay. Um, you know, mm-hmm. traveling around um, would be nice. Um, but unless you're a first class traveler uh, in the United States, you know, f- flying around can be a dehumanizing experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I miss the in-person contact. Uh, but I think that Zoom does offer some programming possibilities and possibilities mm-hmm. for connection that were not possible before. So I'm trying to stay in that space as, as I embark on this, you know, this, uh, this book launch. Absolutely. And, and we definitely hear everything that you said about how this last year has been, it just, just f- feelings and emotions all over the place. And we really, really appreciate your honest take on that. Um, and, you know, so, so as, so we're going to go ahead and get down to it. Cause your book is just, it's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. And just the, the breadth and the scope is just so impressive. And I, I'm so excited to, I was so excited to be able to read it and to reach out of sort of my historian scope a little bit, um, but also incorporate into the discussions we're having. Cause I think there's so many 
examples and just points you make in the book that really very nicely overlap and enhance what we do here at the end of sports. So we're just so excited to really dive into this and sort of hear more about um, more about your ideas that you talk about in it. Um, and, and, and it helps too, because we started some of this conversation about college sport. I mean, we've been having this on end of sport, um, but specifically um, the Sunbelt region, um, when we talk to Andrew McGregor about, and in his research, he talks about how actors in the state of Oklahoma in the post-war era used college football as a tool to help them forge a new identity for the state. And even though we really didn't plan it this way, it is really cool from a geeky historian's perspective now to turn to the state of Texas, which has such a huge place in American sport history and contemporary culture, and learn more about um, this unique moment in, in, in Texas sport history and in American sport history. And your book's argument is about how Texas played an enormous and really significant role in the sports revolution that occurred in the 1960s and 1970s in the U.S., but before we get to the sport aspect of the history, we'd really love uh, for you to walk us through the broader contextual ground for us. For example, you refer to the 1960s and 70s as the so-called Second Reconstruction, which as a non-American historian, I had never heard of before. So could you explain what this moment of the Second Reconstruction consisted of? Absolutely. Yeah, that that episode with Andrew was outstanding. And Oklahoma actually has a significant role in this story, particularly when we look at the integration of um, uh, big time uh, college uh, football in Texas. Um, you know, Oklahoma is doing things before the University of Texas Longhorns, their arch rival does. And maybe we can talk about that later. In order to talk about the second reconstruction, I have to refer to the first reconstruction, the original reconstruction, right, that took shape during the 12 years after the end of the Civil yeah. War, it ended in 1865, in which formerly enslaved black people in the United States, facing the, the, the kind of post-emancipation problematic that other enslaved peoples do, uh, and, and those who were free, you know, fought for the abolition of slavery, uh, uh, received the establishment of equal citizenship and universal manhood suffrage, suffrage right? The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Con Constitution which led to a brief moment uh, where we're seeing an unprecedented, unprecedented number of black men achieving public office. Of course, those who are familiar with U.S. history know that all of those victories were undone by the white South's backlash in the decades uh, after which, uh, which led to the consolidation of legalized and customary segregation in the South, the era that we call Jim Crow. Uh, that was enshrined in the infamous Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court ruling of 1896, which ruled that separate but equal was the law of the land in the United States. Says that so long as the races were treated equally, they could remain separate legally in all spheres of life. So that's the backdrop. That really brings us to the period that I call and others the Second Reconstruction, which really refers to the modern civil rights era. The period from World War II until the 1970s, and maybe 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan, you can end it there, which really the period in which African-Americans and other communities of color sought to regain and expand upon the rights that originated in the first Reconstruction. I'm talking about the legal structure uh, waged by the NAACP, by people like Thurgood Marshall, uh, that overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, that led to the landmark Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling in 1954, that legal outlawed legalized racial segregation in education. I'm talking about the massive grassroots movements that we associate with the civil rights era, the, those led by Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Ella Baker, among countless others, that led to the, the monumental... Um, uh, legislative changes in the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the efforts to challenge racial discrimination in employment and housing, among other manifestations of structural racism. You know, the term Second Reconstruction has kind of fallen out of use. Uh, it originated with the, the American historian of the South, C. Van Woodward, in his classic book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And it was elaborated on uh, by the late scholar and activist Manny Marable in his classic book, Race, Reform, and Rebellion which is the history of the black freedom struggle from the 1940s and the 1980s. I'm kind of following Ma Marable insofar as I sort of see the Second Reconstruction, uh, including other freedom movements along with the black freedom struggle, and including this, the feminist struggles of the late 60s and 1970s, which resulted in the Educational Amendments Act of 1972, which is uh, the act that, that, uh, that makes famous one of its clauses, Title IX, which we talk about all the time in the world of sports and in other realms. So, you know, this is this major political social shift happening in the United States. Uh, and, it, and it's a context that I think provides us with an understanding of what's transpiring in the world of sports and what's transpiring in, in Texas, right, which is a society steeped in conquest, colonization, 
particularly as it pertained to the region's indigenous and Mexican populations, and of course, slavery and Jim Crow, right? Uh, it's also a moment, I'll stop with this point here to your, my long answer to your question. Uh, it's a moment of unprecedented inclusion. And my book is really trying to get us to revisit this moment of inclusion, right? Uh, to interrogate the terms of inclusion, because I think that's an important thing that we have to do in order for us to understand what's been happening in our, in our society over the last uh, five years or more. And, and in your book, you, you also mentioned that in the 1970s, um, in places uh, in, in Texas and in places like Houston especially, they experienced a sort of boon of uh, energy and the oil industry sort of taking over, while the, the rest of the country kind of was juxtaposed in, in, a, in a moment where there was something of an oil crisis. What did the state's kind of increasing capitalist development, particularly in, in the oil industry, mean for the, the second reconstruction? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it means everything in Texas. You know, Texas, you know, I'm not, I wasn't trained as a U.S. historian in, 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 in terms of being an expert in national history. You know, my approach to the U.S. really was informed by my earlier work on the Caribbean, my earlier work on sort of transnational history which really takes regional specificity seriously. And I think in order to understand what's happening in Texas, uh, you have to see, uh, you know, the particular political economy of the, of the state and the region, which is dominated by oil and the energy economy from the moment that the spindle top uh, oil gusher explodes in Beaumont, Texas in 1901, which really sets Texas on this course of perpetual economic growth until the oil crisis of the 1980s, right? Uh, and so while, yes, the rest of the country is experiencing a crisis of shortage of, um, of oil because of the, the major conflict with OPEC, OPEC, Texas is booming in the 1970s, right? Um, and it becomes key in the growth of what historians call the Sun Belt, right? This region in the South, which it enjoys enormous growth, uh, the, the, which stretches from the, the deep South into the Southwest. Uh, so that whereas Rust Belt uh, cities like uh, uh, Cleveland's and the Gary's, Indiana's and places like that, and northern cities are struggling as a result of white flight and deindustrialization in the 1960s and 70s, Texas, by contrast, is on this, on this constant upper trajectory of growth, economic growth. And I think that this is an important context to understand what's transpiring in the world of sports, right? It shapes the outlook of local elites. You know, some of these folks who we can talk about who want to get in on the game of uh, commercializing collegiate and professional sports. And it really sets the context that makes a sort of a, a market, a, a sport market in Texas viable because it's really in this period of economic boom. Thank you so much for that. And that really lays us, lays the groundwork so nicely for us to, to dive into your argument. Um, and, and so your argument hinges, as, as you've alluded to, to this, this point that there was a, a real sports revolution in Texas during this time, the 60s and 70s. Um, so could you explain what this means and sort of who are you talking about when you're when you're talking about the, the groups that are involved in and, and contribute to the sports revolution? Yeah. And, and it's a revolution that's happening in the entire country. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm suggesting that, you know, that Texas becomes, if not ground zero, that Texas entrepreneurs and athletes play a, deci a decisive role in the story. So what do I mean by the sports revolution? I mean, this period starting around, you know, I guess you could date it from the 1950s, but let's just say 1960. You know, into the 1980s when the sports industry, and I mean the professional sports industry, and I also mean uh, the big time uh, college uh, sports industry really explodes. It is, it is really developing in a, in a way that it had not before. You could start it really with the, with the movement of the National Football League and Major League Baseball to California in the late in the 1950s in the cases of the Dodgers and Giants moving to Los Angeles and San Francisco, which really begins the nationalization of the sports industry, the professional sports industry. But right after that, uh, Texas sports entrepreneurs are looking to intrude upon the existing uh, sports establishment starting in 1960, right? Uh, new stadiums are built across the country. There are these moments of stadium construction booms. Uh, the 1920s was one, and the 1960s and 70s is another, in which, uh, led by stadiums like the Houston Astrodome, which is the first indoor stadium built in Houston, uh, the first with artificial turf, the first with luxury boxes, which becomes a staple of all stadium development subsequent to 1965, uh, transforms stadium construction. Many of these stadiums are built with public funds, for better and for worse, usually for worse, right, as we know. Uh, this is a period when football and basketball really grow in popularity, right, thanks to the, the development of 
um, of the uh, ABA, uh, the American Basketball Association, in the case of basketball, which has deep roots in Texas with the San Antonio Spurs. Spurs. It's a moment when uh, professional collegiate football is becoming extremely popular because of the growth of television. So that you know, people in the United States and elsewhere are able to approach sport as 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 a as a form in a form of consumption and entertainment, something to see on TV. So the things that we associate with, with these kind of national rituals, like the Super Bowl, like March Madness, which some people are enjoying now, I'm not one of those people, um, <laughs> originates in this period that I'm talking about, right? Uh, so when we think about modern sports today, in terms of at, at the level of, of the uh, professional and collegiate levels. You know, many of the transformations that we take for granted now really originate from that period. So how did this sports revolution actually relate to the broader, I, uh, what I got out of the book was that you were using sport as sort of a unit of analysis to talk about U.S. history, to talk about a much bigger, much more intentional, um, and maybe much more um, insidious um social change we can call it how does this relate to the to the broad project of the social or the second reconstruction the sports revolution doesn't happen without the second reconstruction and what do i mean by that right i mean what i wanted to do in this book was to take um you know our understanding of the black freedom struggle in this period our understanding of the of all the freedom struggles in this period or some of them anyway and link it to this phenomenon of, of, of the growth of the sport industry because uh, of the centrality of athletic labor uh, to that process. And in particular, the athletic laborers who are emerging from Jim Crow, who are emerging from patriarchy and sexism, and uh, they have become an important part of the story, right? So that, um, you know, sports becomes popular uh, because people like Jackie Robinson are assigned by the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947, what, 46, 47, when he becomes the first uh, African-American to play in the major league since the late 19th century, right? Uh, and that ushers in this tidal wave of black athletes uh, emerging on the scene uh, from black institutions like the Negro Leagues and historically black colleges and universities into these mainstream predominantly white sporting institutions and leagues, Right. Uh, this in, unleashes enormous talent, right, for uh, of talented uh, athletes who are hungry and ambitious, uh, you know, who want to make a mark in U.S. society. And they're encountering and finding themselves all of a sudden in these spaces that have been excluded, that have been excluded from before. Right. I mean, so we know this story when we look at, you know, the famous figures of, of, of Jackie Robinson, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali. We think about Tommy Smith and John Carlos and those sort of in the world of track and field. But I wanted to widen the frame a bit to see how other athletes are part of the story and to provide a bit more of a ground level regional view, regional view, which I think allows us to see these changes more clearly. Right. So, you know, rather than tell this simply as a story of entrepreneurs and, and, and far-sighted uh, sports businessmen, uh, I really want to talk about how their efforts were connected to and relied upon uh, this, this new class of, uh, of athletic of athletes, athletic laborers, I would call them. At the collegiate and professional levels, and at other levels, who are who are, are emerging on the scene in an unprecedented manner in this period. First off, we appreciate um, mm -hmm. the nuance of the athletic laborers term, uh, as you, mm -hmm. if you I follow you any would. of our <laughs> social media. <laughs> we are proponents of of changing the language in in which we use um, to talk about um, college athletic workers. But absolutely, and and I think, um, or or one of the questions I have generally from the book is, do you think um, Texas in particular had a disproportionate effect on this, this, this second reconstruction. Do you think it, um, I'm trying to think of how to frame the question, but do you think Texas was most important in the United States when it comes to, to that change, to that project in the world of sports or in general, in both, I, I think it's actually yeah. a good, a good, a good probe for both questions. Yeah, I'm more comfortable saying that it, it plays a decisive role in the world of sport. Um, and let me say why. Because if you want to understand the history of the modern National Football League, you cannot understand it without the efforts of Lamar Hunt, Bud Adams, and Clint Murkison, who essentially foisted themselves on the National Football League. Uh, you know, Hunt and Murkison create the AFL as a league to challenge the NFL's monopoly over professional football. Uh, the NFL awards a franchise to Clint Murkison Jr., which becomes the Dallas Cowboys, precisely because there's a competition in Texas, right? Uh, these folks uh, intrude upon the NFL. Uh, eventually, the AFL challenges the NFL's um, monopoly, and then there's a merger forged between Lamar Hunt 
and and Clint Merkison Jr.'s uh, general manager, Tex Schramm, to create the monopoly of the NFL today <laughs> in 1966, right? Um, so uh, you can't understand, you know, as I said earlier, uh, our, what the modern stadium looks like without understanding what the Houston Astrodome did to stadium construction, right? The Astrodome is interesting because, you know, it, it, it has it's this first indoor stadium. It is this bells and whistles, technologically advanced arena. But it really catered to a cross-class constituency in ways that stadiums don't anymore. Uh, so, I mean, that makes that space really interesting. You know, uh, Clint Ferguson Jr.'s Texas uh, Stadium, which is built to open in 1971, is the first uh, stadium built specifically for an NFL franchise. And it very much sets a template for all NFL stadiums that we see since then. Um, and then, of course, there's the undeniable, undeniable contribution of Texas athletes, right, from all sorts of racial backgrounds. I mean, I focus on mostly the black athletes and women athletes because I think they've been overlooked when we looked at Texas sport history. You know, with respect to the second reconstruction, I think what makes Texas impactful and interesting is, you know, like other parts of the West, although I think Texas is interesting, it has that history of slavery, that history of Jim Crow segregation, that history of anti-black racism. But it also has this history of uh, the discrimination and the exploitation of the Mexican origin populations, right? Uh, it is a borderland society connected to Mexico. It is a cotton belt society connected to the U.S. South. So when you're looking at the black freedom struggle or the civil rights struggle, you have to look at also the, the freedom movements from the Mexican Latinx populations too, right? So in that sense, it's unique as a case study. Uh, you know, we see similar dynamics in other states, perhaps, but I think, you know, what makes the Texas case impactful in the bigger story of the second reconstruction of the civil rights era is that it forces you to talk about these freedom struggles as connected, right? You, you can't just talk about the black freedom struggle when we talk about Texas. You have to talk about Mexican-American people. You have to talk about indigenous peoples, right, too. Um, and I think that's what this book is trying to demonstrate as a model to think about. I mean, other historians have done this, too, of course. To think about the freedom struggles, you know, uh, the black freedom struggle and the brown freedom struggle, if you will, in a, in a way that's connected. Right. And, and of course, with sports and in, in this book, it's also tied to the feminist struggle, too. And, you know, I think one th one thing that I just so appreciate about your book, um, and I know you said you're building on a tradition of scholars that do this, but like you, 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 are, you weave in these histories so well. Um, and, and maybe maybe this is part of your training as a as a Caribbeanist and Atlantic historian because you know I think people who tend to do those regional histories that they're used to looking at these intersections of all like hit multiple histories of colonialism and enslavement and all these things. Um, but I think your 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 book does such an amazing job of weaving in all of these really complicated moments and doing it in ways that really um, respect what's going on in every community, both in terms of the various sort of levels of oppression that they're working against, but also how individuals work within and around the system. And, and you do it in a way that that totally doesn't come off as, as, as comparing or anything like that. And you're very clear, right, that you are not comparing sort of oppression or victimization. This is not what you're doing at all. You're looking at how these things influence each other. And, and I also really appreciate how like your your history is so grounded in individuals' sort of histories and voices. And so you look at not only, as you say, you know, a wide variety of people within the kind of sport managerial class that you talk about, but also athletes from different groups. And for example, I mean, one history that I thought that was really interesting, and I'm probably mispronouncing his last name was uh, Jerry Levias. Levias. Um, Levias, thank you. Mm -hmm. And and in how like you're you're really sort of careful to point out you know, the limitations that were placed on his ability to assert some agency, but then how he would say, you know, like I couldn't like later, he'd say, I couldn't show my emotions, you know, like I, as being the first, one of the first black scholarship athletes, I think it's to SMU, if I remember correctly. Um, and he's, you know, he has to work within the system because he's very aware of the constraints placed on him. So I think this is something that your, your, your book just does really well. I appreciate that. Um, so I did my you know, my degree, my PhD at the University of Michigan, uh, you know, where the social history scene there, particularly black social history around emancipation studies um, and African-American history and Caribbean and Atlantic history was really robust. Uh, you know, my advisor was Rex Scott, eminent scholar uh, of slavery and emancipation in Cuba and other parts of the Atlantic world. You know, Fred Cooper, an Africanist, was there at the time. Earl Lewis, a historian who's very influential in my thinking about segregation. He's the one who um, who coined the phrase uh, "African Americans turned segregation into congregation," and that spirit I try to you know demonstrate in this book when I look at black sports communities in Texas. 
So yeah, the imprint of that training is here. Uh, and it's also because I spend a lot of time talking about stuff on the field or on the court. Uh, you know, I really try to draw from what cultural historians do, but also what sports writers do. You know, uh, I really want, you know, in the case of Jerry Levias, I want us to understand that that 83-yard punt return that he has in that November 1966 game at the Cotton Bowl wasn't just a touchdown for the SMU Mustangs. He's ushering in a new moment in the United States because of his athletic virtuosity, because of him doing that in the stadium called the Cotton Bowl, named after the commodity that symbolizes the oppression of, of, his, of him and his ancestors. And he's ushering in a new day through his athletic performance, through his labor, his skill, right? Along with his white teammates, actually, right? So, you know, I wanted that sensibility uh, in this book, uh, you know, which, and I wanted it to be a little more accessible than, you know, the this, this social historians um, who wrote decades ago. And, and this is a book that's trying to be pitched, you know, to a, a, a non-academic audience as much as it is an academic one. And, you know, I, I really want to get into the kind of mechanisms that allowed both um, certain levels in inclusion, but also ended up um, implementing modes of exclusion, because this is, I think, a really strong part of your book. And in particular, the role of capitalism, which is obviously something that listeners know we are very concerned with and sort of breaking that down and really ripping that up as much as possible in the end of sport. Um, and you have a really fantastic quote that we like to read aloud and, and hear you expand upon. Um, and, and it's in the introduction on page eight, where you say, quote, oil money fueled the sports revolution, but so did advertising dollars and in the case of tennis, tobacco money. Now, could you break down these dynamics for us, please? The integration story in sports history is often told as this sort of moralistic account you know, uh, uh, people of goodwill, um, you know, triumphing over hate, racial hatred. And uh, that's not a story. I mean, I, I am interested in telling the stories of people of goodwill. So, for example, we mentioned Jerry Levias, um, the head coach of SMU, Hayden Fry, a legendary football coach, a white person from West Texas who uh, always felt the injustice, or at least he was ambivalent about the injustice of growing up in a Jim Crow society. And he said that if you ever had an opportunity to change uh, Texas and change society, he would. And he did when he decided to sign Jerry Levias, uh, the first black scholarship athlete at SMU in the Southwest Conference in 1964. Right? That's the story we've told. What we haven't told uh, is, this, is are the ways in which that dynamic is shaped by the shifts in the political economy of, of sport, right? Uh, and Texas really allows you to see this clearly because so many of these entrepreneurs are sons of oil barons or oil men themselves, right? Uh, and, and what makes them interesting is that they depart from their father's staunch uh, um, investment in segregation, right? Uh, because they understand as businessmen that Jim Crow segregation could not be harmonized with, by, with, uh, with their desire to make their cities or their societies big time sports uh, scenes, right? Uh, and, and, and so that's a dynamic I'm really interested in teasing out in this book. And we know this in other cases, right? So then when Branch Rickey signs Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers. He's not just signing him because he has some moral incentive. He's signing him because he's looking to compete, right? He wants to win and he wants to he wants to tap into the Negro Leagues, you know, for for new sources of athletic labor and talent, right? Um, so, you know, that's what's driving so much of we see in Texas, right? Uh, at the professional level, you see it clearly, but you also see it in the transformation of, of big time collegiate athletics uh, in Texas, right? Um, so that. Uh, Guy Lewis, um, who's the head coach of the University of Houston Cougars basketball, is another Texan who decides to break with Jim Crow segregation. Um, you know, other uh, coaches and boosters are willing to make that uh, make that that decision because there's money being you know poured into these athletic programs. So you know that's a, the economic incentive is decisive. You have to understand that dynamic when you understand that this sudden change that happens in the 1960s. How is it that all of a sudden, you know, and in the case of sports. You know, sports teams integrate much later than other elements of Texas society, right? So that, you know, the Supreme Court decisions are happening in the 1950s, but especially football programs, which is not surprising, as you know, right? They desegregate last, right? I mean, University of Texas Longhorns is among the last schools to desegregate in the South in 1969-70, right? Uh, and the schools that integrate first do it because they want to compete and they want to take down the big dog. That's certainly the case of SMU and the University of Houston, right? So, um so the economic dimensions, right, the flooding of advertising money, 
you know, you see this very clearly with the birth of the Women's Professional Tennis Tour, which happens in Houston, which is a story that people often overlook, right? Uh, Gladys Hellman, who's this uh, Manhattan socialite who's into tennis, basically partners with people like Billie Jean King and Nancy Ritchie, who's a Texas uh, native uh, tennis star, a member of the original nine. And they form, uh, facing fierce opposition from the male tennis establishment, the Virginia Slims Tennis Tour in Houston in September 1970, you know, funded by tobacco money from Philip Morris, <laughs> right? So here you've got this interesting feminist-inspired rebellion in the world of tennis being financed by tobacco money, right? And that's because Joe Coleman, who was the CEO of uh, Philip Morris, was a big-time tennis person. He was looking for good PR uh, in a moment when cigarettes were sort of on the on the decline or being challenged um, in the public realm at that time. Uh, so, you know, and here, that you know, that produces this extraordinary thing that we know today, which is the Women's Professional Tennis Tour, right? So that benefits super talented athletes who are able to make a living. But as capitalism gives to some, it takes away from most, right? As we know, right? Uh, and, and that's the unfortunate legacy of this era, which, where people made decisions and formed alliances that seemed right in the short term. But I think in the long term, the consequences were you know, really negative, I think, for the vast majority of people who wanted to get involved in sport. Just to clarify for listeners, right? So there's this new like sport management or managerial class mm -hmm. um, and these sport entrepreneurs, these are mainly white men, correct? Absolutely. You know, one of the okay. things that, you know, so, you know, what I write in the book, I think it's in the college football chapter, is that the integration era did not, uh, it didn't demolish social hierarchies, it just realigned them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at team pictures of teams from that era, what you notice are the growth of the coaching class. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's really interesting to see coaching staffs go from one or two managers. You see this in all sports in the United States to this gigantic class of coaches now, which are, you know, most of them are parasites, you know, to be honest with you, you know, <laughs> sucking, uh, you know, athletic labor is dry. Uh, we see this very clearly. Uh, and that scene and the sports media scene, which also grows along with television, is dominated, you know, locked down by white men. Absolutely. So as black athletes and athletes of color are moving into the into the playing fields and the courts, right? Uh, uh, you know, we're seeing the concomitant growth of this man of the of the sports managerial class. You know, everything from managers, coaches, all the way up to the to presidents and general managers, et cetera, and so on. And that those spaces are overwhelmingly dominated by white men, right? And that explains the inequities that we see today, right? Uh, in which um, even in women's sports, right. you know, most coaches are men, right? And most coaches are white men, right? Uh, and that is a direct outgrowth of the shifts that we see happening in the period that this book talks about. That's what I'm arguing. Absolutely. Yeah. And then thank you for that. I just, I just wanted to make, like, I could tell from the pictures when I was reading it, but I just wanted to make that clear because to, to go back to your point that, you know, most people think of like in desegregation integration as sort of sol solving all these racial issues. Right. And, and it's really that um, it, it's, it's white men that are able to figure out how can they, how can they exploit um, minor, minor, minoritized people even more so they can make even more money. Right. But it's very predominantly capitalist driven. And I just, yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to hammer that home. Yeah. Let me just say real quick. I mean, you're, you're right, Joanna. I, I would also say though, that, you know, they're responding to the social movements of the time, right. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, they, these mm -hmm. sort of dynamics are, are happening in real time. Uh, people come to these realizations over time. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want to portray this as some sort of conspiratorial. I'm not suggesting that you're saying I'm saying that, but some sort of conspiracy per se, because, you know, probably that, you know, most people wanted to stay the way it was, which you know, certainly in, in, when you look at yeah. collegiate mm -hmm. athletics in the South, right? I mean, most athletic programs, you know, desegregate kicking and screaming, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it is interesting that certain ones like SMU and the University of Houston decide not to. They decide to go ahead because they didn't have the same sort of alumni uh, dynamic that was really driving policy of the athletic program in ways that a Texas or an Arkansas did or an Alabama, right? But they're also responding to the fact that there are students on campus protesting the absence of black athletes mm -hmm. in, these, in these campuses, right? There's a massive sit-in movement, right? There's the black power movement in sports, right? Uh, and people who are smart realize, okay, there's a new day in town and we need to adjust, right? And 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 look, these guys, most of these men, most of the time, and to a lesser extent, women, these are talented folks, right? And so, why not make them part of our Longhorn Nation, as we would call them now, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, they're sort of also adjusting in response to the impact of the social movements at the time. And that actually leads me perfectly to a question that I that I had while I was reading this book. And and like this book, generally, as I read it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Frank is is actually a book that works to actively alter 
our understandings of Texas in sort of American memory. Um, while like our listeners will will obviously be um, or some of them may be swayed by a stereotypical kind of imaginary of Texas as this sort of bastion of conservatism. Um, you're actually illuminating the ways in which Black, Latin, um, Indigenous, working class groups are often missing from that narrative. That is one of the things that I found most powerful about this book. Could you speak a little bit more to this, either in general or specific terms? Yes. Thanks, Derek. Um... Yeah, so I um, taught at the University of Texas, Austin for 11 years. Um, you know, I'm not a Texas native. Um, I'm a New Yorker, uh, a New York native. I've lived in a lot of places. But when I had the opportunity to write this book, or when the opportunity came, and I decided to seize the opportunity, because I was not trained in Texas history, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of, you know, this, pro this project came out of a, an anthology that I co-edited with, with uh, Gina Perez and um Adrian Burgos, we were looking at the Latinx experiences of urban life. It was a volume called Biano Barrio, Everyday Life in Latina or America. And uh, so I started thinking about different projects. And this is happening you know, at a time when, you know, Texas sports is really experiencing a boom. Uh, the University of Texas, Lauren Horns football, they win the national championship in 2005. San Antonio Spurs are in the middle of their championship run with Tim Duncan and Craig, uh, Greg Popovich, their head coach. Dallas Mavericks are winning the NBA championship. So, you know, Texas, you know, takes their sports seriously for better and for worse. Um, and it was kind of an exciting time. And I also encountered, you know, folks on the ground, particularly this group of retired black uh, high school coaches uh, that formed the Prairie View Interscholastic League Coaches Association, which was all about preserving the history of black people uh, in, gym, in, the, in the Jim Crow era in the world of sport. You know, to sort of honor all the people who overlooked when we look at the master narrative of Texas sport history. And that made a profound impression on me. Uh, and that with just living and working there, uh, you know, I realized, you know what, there's a story of Texas to tell that's different from the stereotype that people certainly on the East Coast have for sure. Right. Um, so, yes, I wanted to center black athletes, black people, uh, Mexican-American people, women in this case, right? And, and, and I know it's artificial to separate women from those categories, but for the sake of discussion, since in sports, they, they operate as a, separate, as a separate category. I'll talk about them in that way, right? To sort of show, you know, that uh, even, the, you know, that Texas is red because it's gerrymandered red. It's red because uh, it's voter suppressed red, right? And we've seen this so clearly, uh, certainly since the last election. And I wanted to, I wanted a portrait of Texas that I, I felt like I experienced living there and working there and being you know related to Texas you know through my in-laws. Um, uh, so that very much informs my my um, approach to the book because I think that we too often we write off places. I mean, look what's happened in Georgia politically, right? Look at the enormous political transformation we see happening there, right? Uh, and it's because you know if progressive folk need to be ready to to see spaces that might present possibilities that we that we don't imagine happening, right? Um, and I think that's that's a spirit that informs you know my my attention to the population that I give in this book. So how how do how do we um, as onlookers, observers, sort of progressive people, if you, if you um, want to use that term, how do we reconcile the fact that from what I'm hearing, exploitative um, capitalism, um, both in terms of its harmful human and environmental effects, played a very important role in facilitating the growing opportunities for sports participation in sports participation in a new labor market for black men and, and white women in this context how do we reconcile that um and and how would you um advocate for us understanding that in that sort of paradoxical um uh, relation there yeah you know in my writing i i really try to foreground paradoxes <laughs> you know so that uh, <laughs> I guess to me that means that's good scholarship. But beyond that, um, you know, I think it's it's important for us to sort of you know reckon with the complexities of any social, political, cultural situation. Um, you know, and I also wanted uh, this to be a story in which we're looking at inequalities and hierarchies from both a perspective of race and gender. You know, uh, too often there are books um, that just focus on the black athlete or women in sports. And they, they're often seldom, in, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but you know, they're not in the same analytic frame as I would like to. Um, but so, so, and, but I, I would, I guess, you know, it's funny, I don't see this work as contributing to this sort of new histories of capitalism, which I see talked about in my world among historians. Um, but I think what's been useful about that work in recent years is that we are historicizing capitalism. 
right? Uh, and any theorist of capitalism knows you have to historicize, you know, uh, industrial capitalism and post-industrial capitalism or whatever, right? So it is absolutely true that in this period, the sport industry is emerging. It's in flux. It is not. It has not become this sort of hardened <laughs> hierarchical structure that we know now, which is so corporatized, right? So that within this context, if you look at labor unions and big-time professional sports, you know this is a great period. This is when free agency comes to Major League Baseball. This is when uh, uh, basketball players, many of them black, are leading the unionization charge in professional basketball. Even the NFL uh, uh, labor movement is achieving significant gains within the con context, the confines of a capitalist structure, right? Those, those uh, possibilities get exhausted, <laughs> I think, by the 1980s, I think, you know? Um, and I think this is a real question for people in 2021. You know, one of the things that I'm heartened by what I've seen this year so far are these developments in the WNBA and in women's sports, when you're starting to see signs, little bitty signs of new conceptions of ownership, you know, uh, of professional franchises. You know, that may be just cosmetic, but that's an interesting development, right? Um, but, you know, I think we have to, I guess, struggle within this context because that's what we have. But I think the more we struggle, the more we realize we have to come up with some alternatives, right? And you're not going to see those alternatives necessarily in the world of big-time sports. You'd have to do something that this book doesn't do, which is really look at the grassroots level, right? To look at the, the struggles against hyper-professionalization of youth sports, for example, which maybe that's certainly something that I think about a lot in the United States. Um, and but, but at the same time, you know, we're in a different moment than we were in the 1960s and 70s when people saw opportunities and they took advantage of them. They did. Athletes took advantage of the structures and some of them, you know, became stars and became celebrities and, and got paid and, and uh, got some pensions. And, and that was a significant development. But it was really for, you know, a more, you know, I would call the labor aristocracy of the, of the sport laboring class. So you've already done a little bit of this, but I, I'd like to ask you specifically, how does your book and your work in general shed light on today's athlete activist movement, the brilliant work that, that you've um, alluded to by folks in the WNBA and the NBA, we're seeing a little bit in college, um, in the college sports world as well. But how does your work shed light on that? Yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, it, it, I, I didn't foresee the book coming out after 2020, but it certainly was influenced by what's been transpiring in the, in the sports world, you know, since 2016, for sure. Um, and so I think, you know, this book allows us to see the kinds of questions that were being posed by athlete activists in the late 60s and early 70s, which is, you know, the period I talk about when I talk about activism, I really talk about that period, right? And I'm not just talking about, you know, the well-known stories of, of Harry Edwards and, you know, Muhammad Ali and folks like that, you know, what makes that moment interesting is that even if black athletes are in the leadership of that movement, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown, et cetera, this is a cross-racial movement, right? Uh, and you're seeing all kinds of interesting activism and just refusal, you know, from a wide array of athletes, you know, college and pro, right? So, you know, the one person I talk about in this book who's been overlooked is uh, this guy named Gary Shaw, who was a kind of a second string offensive lineman who was trying to make it on Daryl Royal's Texas Longhorns um, football team in the 1960s. He publishes this book, which is, I think, out of print. It really needs to be rediscovered. Uh, called Meat on the Hoof, which details the absolute brutal exploitation he experienced trying to make it on the Longhorns in the 1960s and the disillusionment that he, that he felt as a result of that, of that experience. It's a book that Longhorn fans tend to write off as a, an expose, a takedown of Daryl Royal, who's the sacred cow in Texas Longhorn history. But if you read it closely, he's raising questions that we would call uh, around toxic masculinity, right, in 1969, 70, 71. Right. Uh, you're seeing all sorts of people resisting the authoritarianism of coaches. Right. Uh, you know, Shaw is one of them, among others. Rodrigo Barnes, who's this, this linebacker for the Rice Owls, is, is acting similarly. Dwayne Thomas, the star running back for the Dallas Cowboys. You know, he wins the Super Bowl with the Cowboys in 1971. And he's like, you know what? This is a bunch of nonsense. I don't I'm not going to go along with the Cowboy program of, of exploitation. <laughs> right. Um, and so you're seeing these interesting, you know, among other examples, this is a great book by uh, um by, um, uh, goodness, I'm forgetting the book, North Dallas 40, former Dallas Cowboy uh, uh, running back who writes a, a sort of an expose of NFL life in his fictional novel that was published around that time. So you've got people in that period raising questions that are being revisited now, right? Uh, but what makes, this, what makes this period our time now is that this has happened after the passage of Title IX and after the growth of a, of a women's sports industry, if you will, right? Uh, and we see this so clearly uh, this week, just by all the um, 
the attention that the inequitable structures in March Madness have shown, right, by, by, the, by the women college basketball players this week, right? So, so you can revisit that moment as a predecessor, a precursor to this, to this time. You could also see how it's raising questions that really are just now being addressed now, you know, which I think what happened last year is that much of the activists uh, movement was focusing on solidarity with black communities around police, police violence, understandably so. But now we're starting to zero in on the inequities in the sports world, you know, uh, the attention that sexual harassment is getting in Major League Baseball, uh, the stuff that we're seeing in the WNBA. And I'm looking forward to this year, you know, uh, seeing how these questions continue to evolve uh, in the world of sport, because that's where it needs to happen. Right? This is not a situation where there's an equitable sports structure of merit, meritocracy, you know, try, sh you know, shedding light on justice outside of sport. The injustices in sport are just as pernicious as those that are outside of sport. And I think the athletes now are, are starting to demonstrate that they're aware of that. So you, you, this is a little bit um, away from the book, but I, it, you've mentioned it and I have to ask, what is your read on the hashtag not NCAA property? Um, and with specifically with what we saw this week um, with Sedona Prince and the diff, the the totally um, off-putting um, workout conditions that were given to um, the men's tournament and the women's um, tournament and the, the disparity there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I started talking about it in my last response. I think, again, I, I see this is interesting, right? Because of course, when the pandemic was, was uh, reaching into the fall, uh, you know, uh, the Pac-12 players had, you know, staved off uh, or pushed back against the idea of playing. And then, of course, they lost that battle, right? So college athletes lost a lot of battles last year, right? We see this in the case of Texas, right? So Texas football players were protesting systemic racism in, in at the university. You know, they made a bunch of demands, uh, including the demand of the, um, the, the cancellation or the ending, I should say, not cancellation, of the alma mater, the eyes of Texas. Um, and, and, and they got some, you know, symbolic victories, but they lost a battle in a lot of ways, at least for now. Right. Um, uh, because they were forced to play, they were, they, they were coerced to play or they decided to play because they decided that their individual careers are more important than health and safety. And that, that was their decision. That's fine. I mean, they didn't really have much of a choice. Um, so, you know, I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, like by forcing these athletes to play, it didn't resolve the inequity. The inequities are still there. And now that, you know, there's been an awakening uh, around structural racism, and I would say structural sexism and all sorts of structural isms, I think today's athlete, you know, is, is ready to, to at least, you know, at the very least on the, on the level of social media, raise these questions, right? I mean, this was unthinkable, um, you know, 10 years ago, you know, in the era of Michael Jordan in the, in the, in the, in the 90s, when there was this perception you know, among athletes, including black athletes, celebrity athletes, that, you know, the civil rights era had done its work, uh, that black athletes could just play and make a lot of money for themselves and for Nike or whatever, whoever their sponsors were. It could be apolitical and that'd be fine. Those days are, are over for now, it seems to me. And I think we're seeing signs of that in these cases that you, that you highlighted in your question. And, you know, that's a, that, to me, that's exciting because it then presents the possibility that athletes understand, including the vulnerable college athlete, they're much more vulnerable, as you know, as you talk about all the time in your podcast than the professional athletes, you know, that uh, they're, they're willing to speak out and they're willing to, to, to you know, throw some shade on, the, on this horrifically inequitable, inequitable, you know, exploitative structure that is uh, modern, you know, collegiate athletics. One of the things that I wanted um, to ask was about this sort of managerial class um, this like expansion of this new sport management class and whether or not you think that that idea that was outlined well in your, in your book can actually be used as an, an analytic for understanding like the boosters and the donors that decided to send an email um, in response to players sitting out the eyes of Texas. Like, do you see it spreading in, in terms of into the consumer base, if you will, or these like pseudo consumers, people who have like, not only do they want to see and watch the, the, the team, but they like feel that their voice is valuable and valued because they are like wealthy donors. D do you understand what I'm kind of asking here? Yes, I think so. Well, in the case of, so, you know, the, I'm not an expert on the on contemporary, uh, the contemporary financing of intercollegiate athletics, but <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I'm speaking from the pers perspective of what I saw in, in the moment I'm looking at, which there's some continuities there, right? Which is, 
that the alumni base and the boosters are, they're not just consumers. They're the ones who are supplying the capital. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, they're the ones who are funding the operation. Right. I mean, what makes the, there's that great 30 for 30 documentary when 30 for 30 documentaries were good. They're not good anymore, (laughs) in my opinion. The one that's um, called Pony Excess, which is on the SMU football scandal of the 1980s, which I talk about Mm -hmm. in my book. Um, There you're able to see very clearly you know, how the SMU program, like all these programs are funded by, you know, by donors, right? Some of them very wealthy and powerful. A lot of them are, right? Some of them, you know, occupying the state house as as, uh, the Texas governor at the time, Clements was, when he was uh, also on the board of governors of SMU, right? So you're talking about deep connections to the power base of Texas society when you're looking at these donors, okay? And that certainly is the case to this day. Right. I mean, in many ways, they're the ones employing these coaches, <laughs> these athletic directors, you know. Um, and, and what's so interesting about that case in the 80s is that, you know, that's a story that we always tell as, oh, this is the excesses of corruption in college sports. That's, you know, SMU folks, you know, were kind of right when they said that the NCAA was going after them, you know, making an example of them, when in fact the entire uh, enterprise of college football in Texas and elsewhere was doing the same exact thing they did, right? So that's not a story of recruitment violations. That's a story of too much money going into the hands of athletes. It's one thing to pay your athletic director millions of dollars. It's one thing to pay your coach millions of dollars. It's another thing to pay, you know, your offense alignment, you know, a couple of pennies for house payments <laughs> and for nice cars, Right. So the way we tell that story is just wrong as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's just misguided because it presumes the notion that there's some sort of clean programs out there, you know, clean in, from the perspective of the NCAA. So when we think about that moment, that, has, that informs what we see happening in a place like Texas. No doubt that, um, you know, that the alumni base is extremely powerful, uh, that they hold the student body in contempt unless they're their own sons or daughters, uh, and, and that uh, the athletic program works for them as far as they're concerned, right? And you see that disconnect so clearly on that campus because I worked and lived there for 11 years in which, you know, there's a UT Austin that is a more representative of the state's population. And then there's the crowd that congregates at Longhorn Games in which the inequities are so, the disparities are so evident. If you just walk around the stadium and, and see a game like I did when I was there and see how those games not just reveal the ec- economic exploitation of the, of the contemporary college athlete, most of them are black in the case of football and basketball, but the ways in which that event just, it, it, it never, it never sheds the ghost of the Jim Crow era. It's still steeped in the traditions of that era. It still reanimates the hierarchies of that era with the exception that the, the, the players are not excluded. Black players are not excluded. They're actually on the field performing, you know, for, for the predominant white donor base. And, and that's what we're seeing in a place like Texas and other schools in the South, like Alabama and all those big schools in the SEC. I'm sure you're seeing a similar dynamic there. And so, you know, that's what makes that situation not just representative of the power of the alumni base and the donor, the power of the donors as suppliers of capital to the situation and financing, but the ways in which that's just completely entangled in the Jim Crow history of these states. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I, I wanted to ask you more about is sort of is your analysis of football stadiums. And you've mentioned this before, but I think um, you, I think this I think a like think the the study of, of sports stadiums is something that is is a really growing part of the, the sport history field in particular. Um, and so I think that the work that you do on the Astrodome and other um, arenas is really interesting. And I found another quote that I wanted to read aloud to you that's that's on page uh, 77. Um, where you essentially explain how the exterior or the appearance of the Texas stadium sort of glosses over um, all the violence and sort of all the labor and exploitation that went into it. And you say, quote, Texas stadium's pristine appearance, however, virtually disappeared the hard labor entailed in making a game day possible. And you go in and talk about how the use of AstroTurf, for example, ends up producing more violence and more harm and, and brutalization. Um, so what did it mean for you to include this, um, the history of these stadiums, the construction of them in your work and sort of what, what would you like us to get out of this part of the, your history? Thank you for that. Yeah, I've, I've uh, thought too much about stadiums. I'm not done writing about them. My next book is going to be about stadiums. Um, but so you can see those preoccupations in this book. So to me, the stadium 
you know, I'm very influenced by geographers. You know, Chris Gaffney, a geographer, wrote this great book. Um, it's called Temples of the Earthbound Gods. It came out in 2008. It's an analysis, a spatial analysis of soccer stadiums in Argentina and Brazil. And, uh, you know, the way geographers have theorized space uh, in the stadium space in particular, those in the UK as well, very influential the way I think about stadiums, right? Uh, as sites of not just, um, you know, sites where power dynamics are established, but they're also sites of struggle, right? Uh, and I think that stadium analysis doesn't account for that as much as I would like. And I think that's what I'm trying to do in my next book, right? Because even if stadiums have this panoptical quality that surveils and polices populations, you know, sport performance and, uh, and fan activities are unruly. Uh, and there's the ever-present moment where uh, the, the fan and the athlete can disrupt the, those arrangements, as we've seen athletes do since Colin Kaepernick and the WNBA players started protesting in 2016, right? So I'm really interested in that dynamic of, of, of struggle that we see between st stadium developers, fans, athletes, right, who are all supposed to toe a sort of line of apolitical athletic competition, but that, you know, that, that's not how stadiums work, actually. Right. And they can also work in the opposite. You know, there are also spaces where right wing violence happens against, you know, uh, players, uh, as we've seen over and over again in soccer stadiums, for example, in, in Europe and elsewhere. So, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the ways in which the stadium space and in particular Tex Rams, Texas Stadium, the Cowboys first stadium. when they move into in 1971 was made for TV. It was made to sanitize the violence of football. Right. Uh, and AstroTurf was there, you know, not just to save on the cost of, you know, not, you know, there was a cheaper alternative to grass. But that's not what's going on there. What's going on there is that this is a way in which, you know, uh, the, the, the sport is made palatable to an American public, which is which is delivered on television. Right. Football is the, is the best example of a sport that was remade for television for the television age. And every stadium after Texas Stadium has a very similar arrangement, you know, a very similar layout. Uh, you know, and one that, I mean, if you look at players today, those, those fields are artificial grass, right? You don't, you don't even see the dirt anymore unless you're looking at a game in Green Bay or something like that, right? So, yeah, I think that that's the, that was central to the ways in which the NFL became popular because, you know, the violence was, you know, uh, you know, sort of brushed off as, oh, this person got their bell rung or, you know, or they have a knee injury or, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and also, you don't, you don't see the violence in the same way because television doesn't allow you to see it in the ways that you did if you saw it in person, if you were on the sideline. Yeah, and and perhaps no, uh, nothing indicates your interest in um, arenas and in stadiums more than than your conclusion in the book, where you where you actually include photos of both AT and T Stadium um, and the Astrodome, and highlighting um, the all of the issues. I think that we tend to forget that go into not only the building of an arena, but the spatial configuration of those arenas, which you're, you're mentioning and you're articulating exceptionally well. And I think particularly when we think of um, Jerry's world or AT&T stadium, Jerry's world is in many ways the, the like epitome of everything you're saying, right? Is the epitome of the politic um, or, or the, the intersection of politics and sport, um, in and and I think we often forget that we often forget that these are publicly funded, um, and and they don't need to be, right? They don't need to be publicly funded, and yet for some reason the easiest thing to do is to convince a city council to fork over um, money for arenas. We see it in Canada, we see it with hockey arenas, uh, we see it in in Europe and all over the world with cricket and football stadiums we see it in the united states that that even the stadium is inherently political so when people are saying keep politics out of sport it's quite literally impossible indeed i agree with you 100 percent and you know and it's not by accident that you know arlington uh where the at&t stadium is is where so many of these events have occurred in texas during the pandemic right yeah. uh yeah. you know arlington becomes famous uh or starts to become famous when the when bob short moves the washington senators major league baseball franchise to, to arlington texas in 1972. you know uh jerry jones moves the cowboys there uh you know when they build uh, when they open at t uh, stadium in 2009 uh and now there's another ballpark there's been two ballparks for the rangers in arlington since the 1990s right we have the new global life field or whatever it's called now um 
and of course, that's where these these games are being played. That's where the Major League Baseball playoffs were played last year. That's where the Rangers are going to have, you know, have removed all um, uh, limits on attendance for opening day uh, in, in a couple of weeks. And so it's not by accident that Arlington is that space because Arlington is one of those cities that decided to go deep into the sports game and to build stadiums for, you know, for corporate interests, for owners. And that's what they've done since 1972. And that's what they're still doing. Yeah, it, 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 arenas and stadiums are so fascinating because not only do they tell a story about like architecturally, but they tell a very specific cultural and social story. When you look inside and you see the, the things that are remembered or not remembered, um, the, the ways in which human behavior is conditioned or not conditioned inside those spaces, there's just so many um, layers to that. So I'm, I agree. I think that we need to, as sports historians, sports sociologists, people interested in sport, pay more attention to the places in which sports are played or not played. Um, the last question, Frank, I want to ask you is a question we ask many of our guests because this is something that we we ourselves grapple with, this question. We ourselves negotiate this constantly in our own minds. We always like to talk to our guests about their own fandom. One, would you identify as a sports fan? Um, and then two, if so, how do you reconcile your lifelong sports fandom with a critical approach to sport? Yes, I've heard this question on your on your show before, and I'm glad you're asking me. Um, first of all, you know, I just want to say that I don't think the conundrum that we face as sports fans is any different than other you know, dilemmas people who are, uh, who are fans of other popular cultural forms, you know, music, mm -hmm. art, and film, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, have to face, right? All right. of those art forms uh, and cultural forms have their own sordid dynamics of exploitation, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean... You know, think of the, all the great musicians that we love and think of the, the underbelly of some of the, uh, the conditions that led to the production of their art, for example, right? So, I mean, in that sense, I think about it within the context of that bigger frame. But nonetheless, uh, you know, my heightening awareness of the exploitative dynamics of sport, you know, leads me to no longer watch. I don't watch college sports. I don't watch March Madness. I don't watch college football anymore. I don't watch the NFL. I don't do it because I object to the ways in which they, de they dehumanize human beings. I just, I just, you know, and I don't care how good the athletes are and God bless the people who watch those sports. You know, I, I don't do that anymore. Um, so my critical approach to sport, my decision to work on sport 10 years ago certainly shaped, you know, my, 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 my sports spectatorship practices now. Um, you know, so I, I tend to watch, if I watch any live sports, it tends to be tennis. It's a sport that I think, I mean, it has its exploitation, no doubt, but at least, there's long histories mm -hmm. of women's participation. There's an international component. Uh, there's these compelling figures. You know, I get into storylines. I don't, I don't root mm -hmm. for certain teams. I really get into the stories of people who I think exemplify what sport can give us. You know, this most of our discussion has been about the exploitative dynamics of sport, but sport gives us possibilities. Sport gives us a freedom dream, to use Robin Kelly. Sport gives us visions of what we want a world to look like. You know, I see that in virtuosic sport performance, and whether it's whatever sport it is, not so much football anymore, <laughs> but uh, certainly in, in other uh, realms of sporting life. I mean, I love to play tennis. It's something I picked up in my 30s, and, you know, I'm not great at it, but it, 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 it is an edifying force in my life, you know, so... I think my answer to the question is that I've adjusted my spectating sport practices in light of my growing awareness of the brutalization that many athletes experience uh, and the gross inequities that we see all the time, you know, and I'm more eclectic in what I enjoy. So, you know, I can certainly get into a Naomi Osaka, the great tennis player. I can get into a LeBron James, mm -hmm. but I get excited watching the Columbia University women's basketball team, you know, or a pickup game somewhere, you know, so I, mm -hmm. I look for what sport gives me, which is a sense of community for people of color. It gives us a sense of, of belonging to each other. Uh, you know, uh, certainly that was my experience growing up in the Bronx playing sports, baseball and basketball. I was good at baseball, not so good at basketball. Um, but, you know, there was undeniable community impact that I experienced growing up uh, as an athlete growing up. You know, the sport was a space of affirmation for me that school was not, you know, I was a public school mm -hmm. kid in a moment when public schools were being sort of abandoned by uh, New York City. Uh, and, uh, you know, the place I found myself was on the pictures now, you know, I have to say. So, uh, you know, those formative experiences stay with me. They also inform the kinds of stories I want to write about in my own work. Because uh, I do think that if we're looking at 
visions of what a just society looks like. We can see that in moments in sport. And I saw that in my book too. You know, I did, mm -hmm. you know, even in the midst of all the exploitation, that's, that's clearly part of the story. And uh, that's what I find compelling. And I think that's how I deal with this conundrum of, you know, how do you engage sport, enjoy sport, promote it for what it does uh, um, that could be edifying and, and, and impactful in a broader sense, while never forgetting, you know, uh, the, the kind of underbelly of it all, you know, or a lot of it, I should say. Well, the book is The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. Frank can be found on Twitter at F-G-U-R-I-D-Y. Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show, chatting to us about the book. It can be found in our show notes. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk, asking me great questions. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to reading your stuff and to more podcasts down the road. Oh,